couple friends of mine do life together as a married couple. They're dependent upon each other, and they make such a wonderful team, and they have a routine that they enjoy. Randy and Connie Faulkner, welcome. I didn't know you were here this morning. It's good to see you. Thank you for your years of faithfulness invested in this place. We, we stand on top of the shoulders of your faithfulness and minister. Thank you. Um, this couple, they do everything together, and they have a routine, and they enjoy their routine. Um, a part of their routine is at 11.30 every day during the week, they stop and have lunch. And it's as if it's the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning them. They, they, they stop at 11.30 to do it. I have been uh, with him before. If something alters his schedule, and that, those hands on the clock would happen to pass 11.30, why, he'll get a phone call. And it always begins the same way. The phone will ring, he'll pick it up, and his dear wife will say, what's going on? Um, in fact, sometimes if I'm around him, around 11.25, I like to, I like to press him just to, to pass the mark, just to listen to the call and the banter between them. What's going on? I thought of her question this week in coming to this passage in the book of Romans, chapter 11 and verses 1 through 12. Because in Romans 9, 10, and 11... What Paul is doing is he's answering the question, what's going on? I thought God made all these promises to Abraham. And if he made these promises about the coming Messiah, who would be the redeemer for Israel, what happened when Jesus came and, and now look what's happened. Um, a few of us told other people about Jesus, and now Gentiles from the pagan world, we use the word Gentiles uh, in the first century. It was a term used as a catch-all term for the godless, those disinterested in God. Uh, now the godless have heard about Jesus and theirs coming. Hey, what's going on? How could this be? Paul's answering that question in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And there was a theory that developed that went something like this. Well, it must be that he's done with Israel. He's finished with Abraham's people. And that's what's going on. Paul runs after that theory and describes the reason why it is in error. Now, he delves into an argument here, argumentation, explaining something. Unless we go off to the land of Nod and think, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Stay tuned. When I get to the third point, that's what it will have to do with anything. Because this passage, if we let it, will get in the stuff of our lives and how we live. And the learning is always for living. And so here we are, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 12 this morning. It's my privilege to read it to you. I ask then... Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant 
chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure or loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean here the word of the Lord? You ever wondered what God was doing in the world? Ever wanted to call God up and say, God, what's going on? Something you anticipated. God has a great plan of salvation for the world. Remember the author of the book of Hebrews said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a plan of salvation? God's story of redeeming mankind is layered and quite involved. Where is history going? What's going on? Paul answers some of those questions here, and specifically the question, do Abraham's people have a future with God? But the better question for many will be where we get in point three. Does this make any real difference in our lives now? Mounts, are you just up there talking? Jesus speak on Sunday morning, devoid from any sense of where I live. Hold that thought till we get to Point three. Point one, I want to go through the first half of the logic of this argument. Point two, I want to go through the second half of the logic of the argument. That will build a foundation to think about this passage next to our hearts. So here we go. Number one, is God done with the people of Israel? Now remember, this is the presenting question for Romans 9, 10, and 11. If you go back to 9, 3, and 4, Paul is yearning for his brothers and sisters Jewish family to come to place their faith in Jesus Christ. For I could wish that I myself were a curse and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. You come to chapter 10 and verse 1. He's still musing on this. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God for them who are the them. What is the antecedent for them? It's Israel. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You get to 11.1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And he gives an unequivocal answer. And there's three answers that unfold here in this passage. Answer number one is no. Look at the apostle Paul. He's running after this argument that said he's bypassed Abraham's people. He's done with them. They're over. Paul said if he has bypassed Abraham's children, then what in the world happened to me? 
because he lays his Jewish resume right down there. It's, it's pretty good. You cannot argue he's not a part of Abraham's family. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul said, here's exhibit A. I'm Jewish, and God wondrously saved me on the Damascus road. By the way, some believe that what God did to act to save Saul on the Damascus road is a model of what will take place when Jewish people totally unconscious to God and their Messiah in Jesus Christ will suddenly be awakened and do an about face. Uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you? Who is speaking? What did I do? And he was He did a 180 and came to place his faith in that encounter with Jesus Christ. Some believe that's paradigmatic, that that's what's going on in that passage that I was overly anxious for Rochelle to read this morning. They will look on him whom they have pierced and they will come to repent. Now, uh, you say, Eric, well, I I don't think there's a future for Israel. Well, when did God then fulfill Zechariah 12 and 13 in history. I don't see that ever having happened, and so it's anticipated to happen in the future. God's not finished with Abraham's children. How can God be finished with Israel if he reached for the Apostle Paul, a bona fide Jew? Again, note his resume there. Descendant of Abraham, member of the tribe of Benjamin. Second no is this. Exhibit A is the Apostle Paul. Exhibit B is the foreknowledge of God. Is God done with his people Israel? No. God's foreknowing guarantees a future for Israel. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What God foreknew, those whom he foresaw, and he planned in this foreknowledge, and whatever he plans happens. This gets back to what we looked at in Romans 8, 29, and 30. I'll refresh your memory with these verses. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, reading through Romans 11, we need to put verse 2 with verse 29. Now, as we head toward this epic Mount Everest doxology at the end of Romans chapter 11, on our way to the summit, he says this in verse 29, for the gifts and calling and the calling of God are irrevocable. The stress is on this term, irrevocable. So exhibit A the Apostle Paul, you think God's done with Jewish people? Then what happened to me? How comes I came to Christ on the Damascus Road? Exhibit B is going to be the foreknowledge of God, the intentions of his plan, which are inexorable. God, exhibit B, God ordained that Abraham's people are his people. They are the chosen. Remember, God said, Abraham, through you, all the nations will be blessed. It's an astounding thought to me and a glory of the promise of God through Abraham 
that there are only 14 million Jewish people in the world. There are 7 billion people inhabiting our globe. Only 14 million Jewish people. That's a very small number. And the outsized influence that they have had is extraordinary. The amazing things that they have done and they do is unbelievable and indicative. You say, how could 14 million influence? I mean, you go to the industries, you go to the sciences, you go to medicine, look people up. We're talking about the influence of Abraham's children. God blessing them to bless the world. Abraham's people. God ordained that Abraham's people are the chosen ones. Now, the third no is this. If exhibit A is Paul, exhibit B is the foreknowledge of God that planned this to be. Exhibit C is going to be a little history from the people of God. Elijah, one of their famous prophets. Is God done with the people of Israel? No, God always has a remnant of the faithful among his people. Look at verses 3 and 4. He delves into history and then look at verse 7. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. That's true. They've demolished your altars. That's true. And I alone am left That's not true. And they seek my life. That is true. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul uses history to make his argument. He goes to Elijah's day. And Elijah's day, by all standards of measure, was a day of low ebb responsiveness to the one true God for the people of God. They weren't doing well. So Elijah, under pressure from Jezebel, under threat for his own life, he concludes, Lord, I'm the only one left that is faithful. Just me. This is it. It's just me. I love Psalm 4.3, which says, The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Well, Elijah, uh, the story of Elijah and how Paul is using it is he's facing this spurious argument. If most of the nation rejects Christ, it must mean God is finished with Israel. And so Elijah joins that argument of saying, since they've rejected you, it must be that I'm the only one left and you must be finished with Israel because I'm calling them to repent and they are not. And so I'm the only one left. He could not have been more taken aback when God told him, Elijah, your piety is overcooked and much too well done. 
you're not the only one left. I still have 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee in Israel. I'm reminded that God is at work all over this globe. And he is at work among boys and girls and men and women and pursuing them and calling them to himself. I've had the privilege of going to several places in the world and every place that I have gone, including in the middle of the Arab world, have been places where God was at work revealing Jesus Christ to others. My favorite picture of all my trips, I, I should have dug it out of the archives. It would have taken me several weeks to find I have everything, but I just can't find anything. But um, my favorite picture, I, I met Anatoly in Russia in 1999. And he's a neat young man, uh, full of zeal. I got talking to him. And he lived north of the Arctic Circle uh, in northern Russia, uh, up toward the North Pole. And he ministered there to villages. He loved Jesus. And at Christmas time, he would partner with Samaritan's Purse and take these uh, shoe boxes full of goods to children in these villages. And so my favorite picture of all the pictures I've ever received was uh, Anatoly standing next, Christmas boxes. He's got a sleigh. Oh, but it gets better. It's drawn by reindeer. <laughs> and there he stands next to a sleigh full of those boxes in this obscure two-bit place north of the Arctic Circle, in the middle of nowhere, communicating Jesus Christ to children. That's our Lord. Unless you think, oh, you know what, Eric? I think we're just all that's left. Start wringing our hands. Do you realize nobody's wringing their hands in heaven? And that God is prosecuting his great plan of salvation all over the world and invites us to be a part. Now, as we get to be a part, it's important for us to understand that we are not the point, nor are we the only ones left, nor are we indispensable. You know what's amazing about our Lord, and it's astounding to a proud man? He did really well before 1959. He did well running the world. And... Um, after I die, my sense is he will do very good and well at prosecuting his plans. And, work. and I get to live, you know, just like a flower, just for a few days. What a privilege to try to invest my few days in what he's doing in the world. He doesn't need me. I'm not at the center of everything he does. And oh, how... He loves your faithfulness. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Oh, how he loves your faithfulness. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But he can do without us. And we aren't it. But we have the privilege to take the few breaths that we get and invest it in what he's doing in the world. God's elect are saved in days of unresponsiveness of the many. Look at verse 7. When he says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Notice his logic. They failed in receiving Christ. Oh, that, 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 that falling must have been fatal then, Eric. No, absolutely not. Their failing is the very key to their reception eventually. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. 
But he's going to go on to talk about this stimulation to jealousy. That their falling actually was a part of a plan that was going to bring them inexorably to recognize Jesus, not unlike Paul on the Damascus Road in a future day. So it's a spurious argument to say if most of the nation reject Jesus, it must mean God's finished with that nation. Now, by the way, Abraham and his people are the only nation on earth in covenant promise with our Lord. Now he says in this phrase, as God speaks to Elijah, they haven't bowed the knee, succumbing to allegiance to a lesser God, in bowing the knee in devotion to idols, to impermanent things, to things that are temporal. When the word of God goes forth, Bruce Walkie said, it has power to change as it is embraced in our heart. And when we hear the word of God and do not respond, we, we develop just a little layer of callous. But repeatedly being unresponsive to God's word being given to us just builds up that callous. And we need the spirit of God with the sword to whack that callous off and bring us to a tender response to our Lord. So we just stop for just one sidebar here. Have we been seduced to bow our knee in allegiance to what we ought not in our age? Is God done with the people of Israel? No, look at Paul. No, look at foreknowledge. No, remember Elijah got down that road and it wasn't a good road to go on and God disabused him of that notion by telling him, I have my people who have not bowed the knee, 7,000 of them in Israel that you are not even aware of. Be wary of those who say there's no future for Israel. That's a part of the call from Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now secondly then, why then did Israel not obtain the promise though they were religious? Deuteronomy 18 the coming one is coming. The Messiah, right in their law, is anticipated. The promised one is coming. One of David's sons will be on the throne. It was all there. Jesus came. Why then did Israel not obtain the promise, though religious? Like number one, there are three answers to this. First, the promise is always offered on the basis of grace and not works. Look at verses 5 and 6. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So Israel receives the law, concludes they must merit satisfaction from God by keeping the law so they try to obey the law. Now, when we try to obey the law, we've gone over this. This is what Paul's already talked about. All we discover is how bad we are at keeping the law. Remember that iconic verse. Uh, Paul said, until I read in the law, do not covet. I had no sense of how much covetousness was in my own heart. But as soon as I read, thou shalt not covet, I discovered all manner of the very thing living in my own heart. 
The law is our tutor. It brings us to Christ as it brings us to our inability to mount efforts in self-righteousness that make us acceptable to God. So for grace to be grace, it's undeserved. It's unmerited. Uh, it's, it's not like a Boy Scout. You know, you start out tenderfoot and you end up Eagle Scout. You just keep working. You get merit badges. No, it doesn't work like that. There's not enough lifetime for any of us to achieve a status of acceptable righteousness. To a person, we all do not have the right stuff. David Jeremiah said, the grace of God and works of salvation are mutually exclusive. It's not keeping the law, but it's embracing the promise. John Stott said, grace excludes work. That is, God's initiative excludes ours. Like Abraham, they had to believe God in order to receive his righteousness. Remember Genesis 15, 6. God says, I'm going to give you a promise. You're an old man, you don't have any children, but you're going to have a son. And I'm going to make him a great, your descendants are going to outnumber the stars in the sky. Real starry night, that night he looks up. He says this, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God's promise and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham got righteous by embracing the promise. That's how all of us get righteous enough for God to accept us. Have you embraced the promise by faith such that God could accept you? Has God brought you here this morning, midpoint August 2023, to awaken in your heart a realization that who's kidding whom, if I die today and stand before God, I could not pass muster at the judgment seat. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to, that God offers to give you the gift of righteousness if you would but embrace the promise, recognizing in the law you don't and I don't have the right stuff to be accepted. Oh, the glory of the promise of life and the invitation from God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Where are you this morning? What's God doing in your heart? He's relentless in his pursuit of you while you live. And what's true is we'll all live somewhere forever. And God is inviting us in Jesus Christ today to come to him, be reconciled to God. Why did Israel not obtain the promise, though religious? The second answer is this. Look at verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. God played the long game and hardened them for a jealous turnaround later. The Jewish nation was hardened by their unbelief. Notice, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. God brought on their stupor. What is God doing in the world by having some Gentiles come to Christ? The blessing of the promises of God to Abraham ricochets off of Israel and comes to the Gentiles. And then upon receipt by some Gentiles, the Gentiles pass that blessing back to Israel. Now, when I was a boy, I was fascinated with boomerangs a little bit. Uh, not too long, because everyone I ever had didn't work. I mean, you know, you watch the commercials, you know, you have the guy, you know, he's, he stands, you know, I don't think I ever got a boomerang. It was like throwing a Frisbee for me. You know, I'd throw it out there and it just 
And I had to go out in the field and find out where in the world it went. It, it never went anywhere. But ideally, a boomerang, by the way that it's pitched, and uh, you have to talk to Stephen Castillo about aeronautics. If, if you throw it and get it going the right way, it will make a turn. Or Pat could help us with this as well. Uh, come right back to us. And this is Israel. That in their unbelief, there's a sense in which they throw off the gift of salvation offered in Jesus Christ. It's apprehended by the Gentiles. And then having observed what's going on in the Gentile world, it comes back to them. So in their falling, they give up the blessing that comes back to them and would not have come back were it not for how they became jealous at what God was doing in the Gentile community. That's his argument here. The promises of Israel are coming back home to Israel in the future. Notice the concept of jealousy. It incites Israel's interest with his work with the Gentiles. Verse 11, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. No, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Notice the anticipation of their responsive hearts later. What dislodges them from their, uh, from their unresponsiveness to God? By the way, what dislodged you? What dislodges us from our inattention of God? People go through loss. People face the consequence of their indulgence. And God uses that loss and hitting rock bottom to show them grace and to point out Jesus Christ. What was it for you if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? What are you going through right now that God is using to open your heart more deeply to his son, Jesus? Israel stumbled and fell in unbelief and unresponsive hearts. Focus on the family with Jim Dobson at his Nader Zenith Height several years ago. They used to publish these movie series. They had one. And they, they got this uh, couple, kind of a country twang, husband-wife, voices blend, husband plays guitar. And they, uh, they wrote this little song called Turn Your Heart Toward Home. I thought of it this week. Because God is acting in the world through the gospel to turn Abraham's children's heart back to him. Turn your hearts toward home. By the way, is he doing such work in your life this morning? Even as we have our Bibles open looking at this passage. God is using the Gentile reception of Christ to bring Jewish people to himself. And don't forget, you know, Abraham or Elijah thought it was over, but it wasn't over for Israel. It's not over if you've blown it big time. That's the glory, the grace of God. Where sin did abound, grace does much more abound. So that's his argument. Now what difference does this make? Who cares, Eric? Why does this matter? How shall we then live? What difference does this passage make? This passage gets next to our heart in three different ways. Number one, our lives can be powerful demonstrations of grace to influence others. Think of the Gentile world. The Apostle Paul uses himself as an example, not because he's heroic, but because God changed his life in the gospel. 
And he wanted them to see that his life had been changed. And as they saw the change in his life, they had to give up on that argument that God was finished with Jewish people because he was exhibit A. Who are we influencing? Do we realize the power of a faithful life? God can use us to touch other people's lives. Are we convinced of that? Does that excite us as we think about this week that lies before us, Monday through Saturday? What is true is we are being watched. Some are amused, some are scared to death by what our smartphones do. We will have a conversation about something. Hey, what, you want some barbecue? Or you talk about where we're going to eat or what you want to do. And we'll pick up our phones and there's ads for barbecue and, and, and restaurants. And say, man, they're, they're listening. I mean, all the time, that stinking phone is listening and absorbing data and tied together with algorithms. Now, here's what's true that we do not, we minimize too much. Our world is listening and watching. And they're asking some very important questions like these. Does anyone have hope? Can our pasts actually be resolved? Is there meaning in life? Is there comfort in loss? Are we close enough and engaging a watching world enough that not unlike the Apostle Paul, we are being used as a catalyst? Is anybody jealous of the life of following Jesus because they are observing what's going on in our lives. You did it again this morning. You put down your garage as you pulled out your driveway and you came here. You go back home. Others are watching. They know the habits of your life. And I'm not saying the end all is coming to church and I'm so glad you are here. And God's huddle is really important to the people of God. We need to forsake not our assemblings. I'm not holding that out as the highest benchmark. But they're watching and we can have influence and we need to capitalize on it. Instead of saying, Lord, I'm the only one left, why don't we say, Lord, powerfully use me where I'm at to show other people the way of Jesus. Secondly, we need to be aware of grandiose visions of our own faithfulness. Elijah had issues. Overcooked piety. I'm the only one. It's just me. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever sensed that? That probably has more to do with your pride than your holiness. And we all get there, do we not? We think God's kind of abandoned his work in the world. You know, God's, he's just not doing as well in the 2020s as he was in the 1980s or the 1950s. No, Elijah, you're not the only one. You're not indispensable. There's another 7,000 that you have no idea even exist and who are bringing me pleasure with their lives. That certainly deflated his hubris, cut down his pride. God has people in every corner of his globe. And he's at work. Finally, Let's make sure that our quest is for the right kind of riches. Did you notice he brings up riches in verse 12 and 11? Verse 12, now if their trespass, that'd be the Jewish nation in rejecting Christ, means riches for the world, that's the Gentile world who had the opportunity then to come to faith. And if their failure, that word can be translated, I like it better, loss, if their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In verses 9 and 10, he talks about how 
the table has been a place uh, in a Jewish home to celebrate the blessings of God, blessings of family, the blessings of children, the blessings of bounty, the blessings of sustenance. And he talks about how God had blessed his people, but they had no mind to recognize where it had come from. So their table became a snare as they celebrated what they thought they accomplished. Their blessings from God just became burdens to them. Footnotes on estrangement from God. Notice the preeminence of Jewish priorities for God. Remember, the gospel is to go to the Jew first and then to the Greek and to the Gentile world, the godless world. He picked Abraham. Now, this is a sidebar, but it's important. There is no room for anti-Semitism for a follower of Jesus Christ. Jewish people are extraordinary folk. Our disposition toward them matters. Verse 12, again, failure, the term loss. Their loss in this period of dormancy to the promises of God has been our gain. It's been riches for us. Knowing Jesus brings us to riches. It's not the booby prize. It's not the white elephant gift. It's the greatest gift ever given for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a loss to come to know Jesus. Do you know him? Do you value that great treasure? Verse 12 uses the term riches. Is not it true? That the most exposure we've ever had to riches is our exposure to Jesus Christ our Lord. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might be made rich. How is God next to your heart from his word this morning? Let's pray. Father, we're going to come to your table. Gladly sit with each other. Memorializing what you accomplished in one afternoon on Good Friday. That's rearranged eternities for many. Oh God, thanks for opening the door of heaven wide by your grace and by your help. Now, Lord, as we sup with you at the table, I pray that you'd be at work in our midst. Speak to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.